Hi, welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs, and thank you for joining me to listen to part two of about seven of my interview conducted with Eric Hoffman and Dominic Grace with the legendary comics writer and editor Jim Shooter. I think it's a fascinating um, episode to listen to. Shooter's got many stories he loves to tell, and you get to hear um, several of them in this episode, including the reasons behind Secret Wars, the creation of the Comics Guild, and the amazing effects of the DC implosion in 1978. Um, Shooter's a master storyteller, as you can tell, and um, I think it's a lot of fun. So um, please give it a listen right after this advertisement. Thanks to follow up to something you mentioned earlier. You said that you studied the Marvel books before you submitted your first script. So you're talking about <coughs> maybe 10 or 12 years later, and you're now in a position to kind of uh, help propagate these rules that, right. that you've learned. Do you feel like it kind of had been a lifelong of learning and thinking about comics that was then paying off to these lessons that you're teaching? Yeah, well, I was starting with, you know, like uh, when I was 12 and I started trying to learn really about how to do it. And then, like I said, you know, like all that stuff that like Barks did and, and so forth, I guess that subliminally, you know, also uh, affected me. And, and uh, see, when I first started at Marvel as associate editor, <coughs> um, like I said, I was trying to actually do the job. And all these guys are like, what the hell is this? Is this some DC writer telling us what to do? You know? Right. And um, uh, and then that was about the time that Stan started getting back more involved with the comics, because he had been like out on the lecture circuit. He had been the publisher of the magazines upstairs, all those crummy magazines, magazine management did. And those were dying. They they were starting to lose serious money, and and uh, I think he wanted to dissociate himself from this disaster, come back and, you know, so he moved back into his downstairs office and, um, and was there and he really didn't have any day-to-day -day responsibilities, his job was to be Stan, you know, um, <laughs> right. seriously, I mean, yeah. he didn't really have any, and he, actually he wasn't even on the organizational chart, you know. So it, actually, it wasn't like with, with Roy Thomas was editor and Stanley was feeding actively, him ideas and actively coming up with ideas and things like yeah, that. No, he, this, this was, he was pretty hands off. He was on the organizational chart. He was yeah. just a little circle off to the side with no, no, no okay. sticks going through. Him, you know? <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, um, uh, so I was associate editor. Archie, when I started, Marv Wolfman was the editor-in-chief. And um, after three months, uh, he was gone. Um, he will tell you he quit. Galden told me he was fired. I don't know. But, uh, uh, I think what they tried to do was like tell them, you have to leave and we'll let you leave with dignity and give you a contract to write and so forth. And uh, uh, then uh, Jerry Conway came in. Roy was going to come back and then decided not to. And then Stan, Stan didn't have any authority, but he, any, anything he told Galton, Galton would do. So he said, well, let's get this Conway done. So uh, uh, they hired Jerry Conway. He was there for about three weeks, and that's a long story. Um, and then uh, after that, they hired Archie Goodman. This whole time, I'm the associate editor. I'm just sitting there doing these books. Uh, so Archie was there for 19 months. And that's, like I said, that's about the time Stan started getting interested in the comics again. And one of the things he would do is uh, when the make readies would come in from the printer, you know what make readies are? Yeah, printer's proofs. Um, Stan would get them, and he would, he, just start, he started going through them, the ballpoint pen, marking things. 
then he would call Archie into his office, and he'd go over them with Archie. Well, the last thing, I mean, Archie knew. <laughs> you know, he didn't need to be told. You know, but he had to sit there and listen to Stan. He's like, meanwhile, he's got stuff to do, you know. Sure. So, uh, so anyway, finally Archie tells him, he says, uh, he says, you know, Stan, Jim is the guy who actually does the hands-on editing. You should do this with him. Because he was just trying to escape and dump it on me. And so, so I get called into Stan's office. And Stan sits there and goes over all the make readies with me. And, you know, we're publishing 45 comics a month. I'm one guy. I'm doing the best I can here, you know. There's only so much time, right? So Stan, with the first few times, he's going over it. He says, now look, he says, don't, don't let them do this. He says, I want nice straight pointers, okay? You know, how about, uh, you know, look, and look what the colorist did here. It's mud. Tell them not to do this. And I expect, you know, do this. Uh, now, this guy just doesn't really understand storytelling. What's this person saying? You know, they, anyway. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I'm doing the best I can, Stan. I'm doing the best I can. You know. I mean, he wasn't telling me anything I didn't know. Right. But there's only so many hours in a day. And what I would do is, like I said, I was shoring up the bottom. So, so I was fixing the worst and most egregious stuff. And I couldn't quite get to some of the stuff that needed to be done. But it was better than the stuff that I fixed before I fixed it. Um, at any rate, so we do this every week. And about the 10th week, Stan is talking to me like I'm a kindergarten kid. He said, now see, Jim. Need to explain to these guys to make the pointers straight. Now, I don't want these little snaky pointers, you know. And, and I'm like, yeah, Stan, I know. I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Look, I've got a lot of books to do, and I'm trying my best. And, and he's telling me the same stuff again and again. And he's like pinching his, the bridge of his nose, and he's, he looks like he has a headache. And you know, and he just thinks I am retarded. I mean, <laughs> he thinks I am the stupidest person on earth because he keeps telling me these simple things, and I can't get them done. Because there are 45 books. Anyway, uh, uh, so and you're a 20-something-year-old guy, right? Yeah, and so there's that as well. So yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, yeah. so I'm, I'm trying not to, you know, get Archie in trouble. I'm trying not to say anything. I mean, like, so many times I'm going to say, "Yeah, I want to fire that guy," but Archie won't let me. <laughs> Why? Because he actually delivers stuff on time, even though it sucks. But, you know, Archie just always just say, you know, most of it's going to be crap. A few guys will take the freedom and they'll do something wonderful. This is, that's just the way of the world, you know. Sturgeon's Fix what you can, yeah. you know, right. and just don't worry about it. Yeah, but I'm the guy getting yelled at by Stan, you know. <laughs> so anyway, Stan just thinks I'm stupider and stupider. And uh, uh, so, but I did actually learn some stuff. He, I mean, as we're going through these books, I mean, he did, I think, all right, an interesting thought, or, or he explained something to me his way, that Mort told me a rule, and then Stan would say it, you know, more reasonably. We talk about the bedrock, and uh, so I, I did pick. I'm not saying I didn't learn anything, but but uh, you know, I, I already knew most of what he was saying. So anyway, he thinks I'm the dumbest person on earth, um, and uh, and then one time he's going over this book, and it was a book that Jerry Conway took a whole bunch of work, couldn't do it all, and all of a sudden there's all these books that literally had to be written overnight. So this is a ghostwriter story, and it was a very stupid story. And I wrote it overnight. I worked all day in the office, get home to my little house, I'm up all night, I write this book, I just, I just, you know, words on paper, you know. 
and uh, it weren't, it wasn't great. So Stan is going through this book. He says, "No one just say this. It's, what's this?" He says, "You know, I don't know. I mean, it made sense. It was functional. It wasn't good." And he's like, you know, like, uh, I don't know about this, you know, this, this is pretty, you know, uh, uh, bland stuff. And, and finally he says, who wrote it? Oh. <laughs> so he looks at the credits, it's uh, me, you know. Like, yeah. Uh, and, you know, well, yeah, but it was, I wrote it in six hours, Dan, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, so he just thinks of it more. So then um, he started doing the Spider-Man newspaper strip, right? And John Romita actually left staff. They still gave him the office and everything like that, but he was off staff so he could do the strip. So Stan would write the strip and John would draw it. But Stan didn't want to plot it. He didn't want to work out the stories. So, so he, would, he, would, uh, he decided he was going to hire somebody to, to plot the strip. And uh, so it was like a really big prestigious honor if Stan chose you to be the one to plot the strip. So he picked Len Wein, who was Ostensibly, I think he asked Archie, who's your number one writer? And Archie said, well, it's probably Len. You know. So he picked Len, and then Len was all, you know, hey, look, look at me, I'm special. And uh, so he, he plotted this strip for a little while, and then Stan fired him. Because <laughs> Stan just didn't like it. He stuff is terrible. <laughs> so, so anyway, so then I guess he asked Archie, well, you know, who else we got? And so Archie, I guess he said Marv. And, uh, and Marv said, oh, no, you know, <laughs> no one wanted to do it because they were afraid Stan wouldn't like it. And then they'd get fired and then they'd be like disgraced, right. you know. So then he gets, Stan goes to Archie and he says, just make me a list of every writer we use in order from best to worst. So Archie makes him a list, 33 names on this list. I'm number 33, all right. That was not because Archie thought I was an idiot. That was because Archie knew that if it was political, because any writer he put behind me would get pissed off. Mm -hmm. So the easiest thing to do was put me last. And I don't know what Archie actually thought of my work, but but you know it was that was really he wasn't out to get me. He just he just you know that did, if he put me ahead of Manager Claremont or somebody, I'd lose their minds. So uh, uh, <laughs> so anyway. So Stan calls everybody on that list, yeah. one at a time, and everybody on the list turns him down. <laughs> <laughs> so he comes down to number 33, and uh, he calls me into his office, and he says, uh, you know, he looks like he has a headache. He says, you're interested, you're interested in plotting this strip? And I said, sure. And he says, okay. And like, in, in, in short sentences of one-syllable words, he's trying to explain to me plotting the strip. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I've, I've, I've worked with strips before. You know? and, and he's like, you, know, you see, <laughs> there's a Sunday, <laughs> and it has to be, you know, <laughs> or, or kind of a complete thing. You know, and there's the week, and then each day you got to have something, but you can't have anything that it's too much. That's, so the, the people who just read the Sundays can't fall. Anyway, he's going through it, but he's talking to me as if he has a headache and as if he is speaking to a kindergartner. And, and I said, yeah, I got this. I, I understand. So anyway, I go off and I write my first plot and bring it in. And uh, so he sits down to read it. And he's reading it. And he says, this is good. I said, yeah, I know. He says, no, no, this is good. I said, yes, I know. I did it on purpose. <laughs> and he was like stunned. He's like, 
how come this is good? <laughs> and I said, I said, you know, I said, I, I know what I'm doing. And uh, so anyway, we started working on the strip. And then there were occasional problems at first because I described something and John wouldn't uh, draw it the way I wanted. Not because, not, not, not that he wasn't good or, or anything like that, but, but I understood what Stan wanted. I'd tell John to do it. John would think, like, oh, I can do it better than that, you know? Mm -hmm. And he would do, well, one of the things, the easiest thing to explain is that Stan, he, he didn't want anything sexy or R-rated or anything like that, but he liked to have pretty girls. You know, he liked to have attractive, you know, Mary Jane's in there, and, you know, and he, he wanted some, you know, sex appeal in the, in the Doris Day sense, you know? Uh, so, so I would describe, you know, like a shot from the waist up of Mary Jane, and John would crop her at the collarbone, you know? And, um, and Stan would say, what, why did we call for this? Did, you know, what are, Jim, what are you doing? You know? I'm like, I didn't call for that. <laughs> so, so anyway, then the next time, after this happens a couple times, Stan is like making me rewrite the plot to accommodate the changes that John made. I said, That's, this is going to go. And so I started doing my little layouts, little, little thumbnails, just like I used to do at DC. And so Stan gets those. This is great. So he writes it from my thumbnails. And now he gets it to John, and John can't change it. Because <laughs> it's thumbnailed and it's written. And so, I mean, John, John and I, we loved each other then, I think. And uh, we still do. And we had, but every once in a while, we'd have something like that where I think he'd get annoyed with me. But, uh, but basically, I mean, we got along famously. But I think it was not, probably wasn't happy that he had to draw, you know, Mary Jane, uh, Mary Jane's figure when he wanted to, or he loved to do those, those big headshots. But anyway. How long did you end up plotting? I plotted it for, uh, I don't know. Glenn um, did the first, like, six weeks of the strip, and then I did it from then. So whenever the strip started until I became editor-in-chief, and even after I was editor-in-chief, I said, Stan, I don't have time to do this anymore. Yeah, I need you. <laughs> and so I continued to do it. Really? And then for a while, and it was killing me. And then I think I, I stopped for a while. I don't know who did it. And then he asked me to come back and do it again. I did a little more. And then finally, uh, he got his brother, Larry Lieber, to do it. Because Larry could do the layouts, too, and that's what he wanted. And uh, so that worked out. But, but uh, so I don't know, I, I maybe you know, three or four or five storylines. Yeah. But, do you get any credit for that in the strip? Huh? Do you get any credit for that? Oh, no, 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 no. No. And in fact, I think it was reprinted recently, and I don't recall. No, they they, they, they didn't give me any. It. But, uh, I think Larry Lieber got credit. I remember seeing his name on the strip yeah. years ago. But he actually drew it. Right. Yeah. He actually right. drew it. That's, it wasn't for. I was just doing little scrolls. I have one right. of them over there if you want to see it. Uh, I brought a lot of show and talk. I'd love to see that. But get, getting back to what Jason was talking about with the success, two, three years in, you mentioned there was the Star Wars, there was the licensing, there was also your impact as far as guiding, well, improving the quality of the. That, I think, yeah. I mean, I mean the that thing seems is, to be the. Right. When I was doing the strip, that's when Stan realized I wasn't an idiot. Right. And then he wanted he he was talking to Galton about we got to get Jim more involved. Right. So they were they were gonna and, and they he was also starting to realize that Archie, while one of the 
all-time greats and genius, incredible guy. He really was not a businessman. He did not have any interest whatsoever in all the administrative stuff and, and all the bureaucratic of dealing with the people upstairs. He, he just wanted to, you know, do the creative part. So they were trying to engineer something where he would get sort of kicked upstairs. He he'd become, you know, the vice president in charge of special things, and I would be the doing the the regular editor-in-chief stuff. Well, he felt pushed out, you know, and uh, I mean, that never came to pass, but he, he was, I think he thought I stabbed him in the back, because he knew I was working closely with Stan, I think he thought I ratted him out or something. But, uh, so he just quit. He said, then he took a contract, and so I became uh, editor-in-chief, first working day of January 1978. Um, you were announced at the Christmas party oh. in 1977. Yeah, Stan was, had a few too much to drink or yeah, something? Yeah, he comes in. <laughs> we were going to wait till uh, it was after the 1st of January to, to tell everybody. Right. And he, he comes in uh, and he, he announced that at the Christmas party he could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. Nobody. I mean, Archie and his wife were boring holes in me with their eyes. Uh, uh, everybody else there is just terrified about, you know, oh God, the, you know, the, the monster is in charge. What are we going to do? Uh, the only people who were nice to me were a couple of the old guys, Danny Crespi, John Tartaglione. Um, you know, they came over and congratulated me and stuff. Everybody else was like, oh, my God. So that next morning, next morning was Saturday, I believe, uh, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, phone's ringing. I'm like, what? I pick up the phone. He said, hello? And it's Marv Wolfman's voice. And he doesn't say hello. He says, well, what are you going to do? I said, go to sleep. <laughs> and he, he wanted to know, because everybody, all the guys who were writer-editors like Marv were worried that I was going to take that away from them and then they might act, have to actually do their jobs. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I said, I said, I'm not going to do anything for a, a while. I said, just let me, you know, give me a chance. Will you? <laughs> so, so anyway, but I mean, a lot of guys were just terrified that I was going to like ruin their lives. Right. And, and like, I, like you were saying, I started trying to raise the quality of the editorial, got, get them to tell real stories, trying to explain structure to them, yeah, make sure you introduce the characters, uh, let's have a significant event, you know, let's have something go on, you know, like, like let's, let's, let's have the, here's where the issue starts, here's where it ends, it's a different place. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, I, mean, I kept trying to do that. And, also, because I, we did get some incentives. The first incentive I got, since I couldn't get the royalties going because of all the chaos that was going on there, sure. I got what, what I call the continuity bonus. You do uh, three issues in a row, you get a bonus. You do every six issues you do after that, you get another bonus. It was a substantial, it was like $500 or something, which was nice, you know, it made a difference to, to people. So we had the continuity bonus, and then uh, the other thing I did was uh, I sort of standardized the benefits because basically before me it had kind of been handled by Saul Brodsky who also was not on the organizational chart but he, he uh, just kind of he filled every vacuum, kept trying to like make a job for himself, you know, and uh, um, uh, he, uh, if you were buddies with him like Mike Esposito was, you got more benefits than if you were Joe Sennett, you lived upstate and didn't come to the office all much. I said, well, no, 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 no. Joe Sennett gets whatever the best we have is. And so I standardized the benefits on the contracts. Uh, 
and I also started introducing benefits for the freelancers. Um, first of all, the first working day of January 1978 was the day that the copyright law of 1976 took effect. Right. And I'm sitting at my little editor-in-chief desk, you know, like, wow, okay, all stuff to do. Phone rings, and I answer the phone. It's Alice Donenfeld, who's the House Counsel. And she says, what have you done about the copyright law of 1976? I said, lady, I've been here 15 minutes. <laughs> no, I've done anything. What are you talking about? Well, anyway, of course, the copyright law required people to sign a piece of paper in advance of their work and all that. So I got that nightmare going on. Nobody wants to sign anything, you know. We're, we can't stop producing, so every month we're producing stuff and we don't technically own it. Right. Um, and uh, that's all going on. Neil Adams decides this is a great time to start a guild and go on strike against Marvel. Oh, right. Neil, I mean, we're friends. You know, give me a chance. Yeah. I'm, yes, I'm going to work on this stuff. I'll get it done. Just, just give me a chance. Anyway, so Neil, I mean, I, to his, I mean, we were talking about this the other day. I said, you know, I said, you were a huge pain in the ass, but, but your kind of pressure from the outside and me working from the inside, it did help to get get things done. Um, can I can I just interject something? Did some of this, the Kirby stuff, Neil Adams starting this stuff up, was some of this? Uh, sort of um, uh, brought about by the what we were talking about earlier, where there everybody was sounding the death bells of, of the comics industry, well, and people were smelling blood, and they wanted to get whatever they could out of it before it went. The ship went down, that sort of thing. Well, not the guild. I mean, like Neil at that time. Does Neil, anybody else want anything? Neil at that Fine, time. Thank you. He thought that the comic companies were making hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. And and I'm like, Neil, we're losing money. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, yeah. like he had a big meeting, and and for some reason, I mean, I was management. He's meeting with labor. They they wanted me to be there. And I, I Neil insisted that I come. Paul Levis was there too. And the, before the meeting started, I when all everybody was gathered, there was hundreds of people. Yeah. Um, I said, hold it, hold it. I want everybody to know that I'm here. I said, this is what I propose. I said, I will leave the room. You guys take a vote. If there's one person that doesn't want me here, I'll go. And Neil said, shut up and sit down. <laughs> there was a... Yeah, that's this it. Is, that's it. I have it in my little portfolio over there, too. Yeah, this is what, what the book that I wrote of the 1970s. I thought that was... Yeah, this don't thing, sign the they, they, they wallpapered the elevator, the lobby, the elevator lobby on our floor, the doors. This sure. thing was... You know, and this was in red, by the way. Okay. That was in red. Interesting. But, uh, but anyway, uh, see, that was the first work for hire form. What happened was I, when that whole copyright thing started, uh, uh, I ended up spending a lot of time with the lawyers upstairs and the uh, Kenyon and Kenyon people, and they sent me to a three-day legal seminar, and uh, you know, trying to learn about copyright. But then the lawyers produced this thick uh, document. You know, multi-page uh, uh, work-for-hire document gave it to me. and said, "Get everybody to sign this." I'm like, "All right." So I'm, I'm giving it to people. Like at the end of the workday, one day I'm starting to give it to people, and it's being torn up, it's being thrown, it's being crumpled, and you know, I mean, everybody was just like, you know, screw you. And so I said, "I'm, I'm reading it, and it's all legalese, you know. Now, therefore, whereas, blah sure. blah blah, and." So I said, so I wrote 
the original Marvel uh, work for hire document, one page. Put it in as simplest English as I possibly can. Of course, the lawyers had to vet it. But they said, yes, this will do. You know? So now it's a one-page thing, and it's less scary. Right. And I started working on getting people to sign it. Well, first of all, we had a bunch of guys under contract. And if you're under contract, you'd already signed the contract, which had that language in it. Um, I asked them if they'd signed this redundant piece of paper anyway, just so I'd have a little sheaf of them to wave around. So yeah, if you sign it, you no problem, fine. It's, you know, it's like uh, some guys had no problem at all. Uh, Frank Thorne said, uh, he said, he said, no, of course. He said, you know, he says, if every farmhand who pulls a teat thinks he owns the cow, <laughs> you know, that was well, his his approach. Right. And you know, it, you know, lots of guys, you know, uh, guys like Bill Mantlo, who were eager to make sure that they were first in line for work. Um, and then what happened was was a lot of guys resisted, and then when DC imploded. Right. Okay, the DC implosion canceled 40% of the line right. on one day. Right. The next morning, I used to get to work at 7 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning. I got so much to do. I get there, there's already a line at the door, at the outside door. Everybody there is signed to work for hire. All the DC guys figured they'd come over and sign the work for hire, get the jobs that the Marvel guys, from the Marvel guys who wouldn't sign it. Right. All the Marvel guys who were there because they knew the DC guys would do that. Mm -hmm. um, I even had Archie guys and other people, you know, everybody was there to sign the work for hire. So I, I spent all day. Saul helped me. He actually, you can, his signature's on a lot of this work for hire because I, there were just too many. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so that, that problem, the, the guild dried up and blew away too because. Right. Everyone was desperate for work. Yeah, right. everybody was desperate for work. And also, at this meeting I went to, two, two things of significance happened. All tremendous amount of, of people there. Three things. Levitz and I both were trying to convince everybody we are not, you know, DC was losing big money. Marvel was losing relatively smaller money. And I said, you know, th these guys will go all reprint or they'll shut it. If you, if you make it hard, life hard, they, they'll just close. Yeah. You know, or they'll just go all reprint, like like uh, uh, Harvey and uh, Archie had, mm -hmm. and uh, that's yeah, none of it. During that '78, what Charles went out of business. That's right. Uh, yeah. Archie was became all reprints and digests. Uh, uh, Harvey was nothing. Uh, reprints. Yeah, so the writing was. Uh, was a, uh, uh, there was, yeah, you know, it was like, yeah, it was really down to just a, a, a couple of us, and uh, um, so. Uh, Anyway, like I said, so that, that, that was one thing at the meeting where Levitz and I really convinced them that, that, that we're not making hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and you know, another thing is I, uh, Neil was talking about what the rate should be about, you know, uh, several hundred dollars a page for the colorist and eight hundred dollars a page for the penciler. And, and, and I, said, I, I said, Neil, I said, I said, look around you here. <laughs> I said, all these guys are talented. I said, but if I can pay eight hundred dollars a page. I'll pay you, and I'll pay Leonard Starr, and I'll pay, I'll get the, you know, guy, I said, a lot of you guys won't make the cut. You know, yeah, it's simple economics, I yeah. mean, right. But logically, actually, so work once the royalty system came in, and the book started selling like crazy, they were actually able to make money like that. Exactly, because, right. yeah, like I said, you know, we're going to get there, just leave, give it, me some time. You it's know? A, it's right. analogous to paying someone up front for working on a film, and then giving them money on the back end. 
Right. So so anyway, I mean, like that was another argument, and both I, I made that, and Paul agreed. And then uh, uh, a third thing was that uh, Neil was talking about how uh, the, the union would help get justice for people like uh, you know the, the creators of the past, yeah. and in particular, he cited Steve Ditko. Steve was there, and Steve objected. Wasn't that part of your first proposal? Was to get yeah. royalties for the creators? Yeah. For for Kirby and yeah for, for those guys too. Yeah. yeah. So Ditko happened to be there. And uh, so uh, Neil was like talking about doing what he did for Siegel and Schuster and stuff, and, and Ditko objected. He says, "I am nobody's poster child." He said, "I was an adult. I knew what the deal was. I agreed to that deal, and I will honor." True objectivist. <laughs> it's like because that's Steve. I mean, yes, he, he's an right. honorable man, or whatever else you might want to say about well, him. Well, he's that a whole objectivist philosophy yeah, yeah, is exactly. that yeah. self. You know, I'm the one who made the choice. I'm the one who signed the document. Nobody else signed it for me, and that's what it is. Yeah, and and he stuck by it. And, right. and the, the other thing that happened, and this was really kind of a killer, is that is that we started talking about that they started talking about artwork return and things like that. And Neil's opinion is that the penciler is the artist, the inker is an assistant. And the inker should only get something if the penciler chooses to give it to him. Yeah, and that criticism was brought up with Kirby because Kirby didn't ink a lot of his own stuff, and so did he actually own the artwork, or was it the property of Marvel? Yeah, or yeah. whatever. But, right. but, the, but the point, no, he, he didn't own the artwork, not technically, if you understand work for hire. But, right. But at any exactly. Rate, at any rate, uh, uh, when he when Neil started talking about it, inkers don't get pages, and inkers are only assistants. The inkers walked out. <laughs> and, and so, right. I mean, it just, it just all crumbled. I mean, the whole storm, the, the, the implosion, uh, uh, the fact that people started realizing that these companies were not, that companies are dropping like flies. Are we really making hundreds of millions? Of the the uh, national economy was also in trouble. Yeah, exactly. It was over 13%. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, the, 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 uh, thank you, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Gas went up 50 cents a gallon during the decade. Yeah, I was like, I got, I got nice raises, and I was making less money every year. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. but uh, anyway, so, so, so that, that was that helped. And it, okay, so I think people sort of settled in and realized, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do this, uh, uh, and then maybe that they had to play ball a little bit. I started getting these incentives. Amazingly, because the story started getting a little more coherent. And you know, we started getting some guys back that had left. Um, all of a sudden, you know, sales started going down. Right. And then the X Men took off, which became the Bell Cow. And uh, all of a sudden, the guys are, you know, like starting to make some money. And then more guys show up. And the guys that stormed out and left, Englehart with them, and Jerry Conway was there left. Well, he comes back. Right. And uh, even Roy eventually came back. Right. Right. <coughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, like, you know, guys like like Bertie Wrightson are showing up, you know, and uh, maybe to do an epic thing or, or to do a graphic novel or something. But, I mean, we're getting all this, all of a sudden, you know, Kaluta just walked in, and here's uh, here's Starlin back, and here's, you know, uh, 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 I can't remember, well, all these good good guys that are turning up. And Claremont was good at that, too. He was he was always out bird-dogging artists. He was very good for that. Milgram was good at that, too. And everybody loved Archie, so everybody would come to Archie. So really during your tenure was uh, what I think it was the beginning of what we think of as Marvel today, as this kind of IP juggernaut with these characters that people have grown to love. I think a lot of what kind of embedded them in people's minds is Secret Wars. 
I speak to my friends who uh, are not big comic fans, but who know any comic series. That's one of the first things they mentioned to me. Um, uh, is it's ironic in a way because it was intended originally as just a toy in toy tie-in comic, but oh. it sold fantastically well. And really well, I didn't intend for it to be merely okay. a toy type. <laughs> okay, but I know that was the, kind of the impetus for the book, right? Well, it was. The thing was, it, it, it's kind of in reverse because because Kenner licensed DC superheroes. They're going to do a line of superhero toys. That's right. Yeah. And uh, superpowers. Yeah, and, and DC yeah. actually published a comic book around superpowers, which nobody read and nobody cared about, right. even though the art was nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and. Uh, so Mattel, when they found out that Kenner was going to do DC superheroes, well, they didn't want to be the only giant toy company that didn't have superheroes. So they uh, they came to us and they said, like, what what do you got? You know. And our licensing people, oh, we got we got Spider-Man, we've got the Hulk, we've got you know Daredevil, we've got and they're like, we haven't heard of half of these guys, mm -hmm. you know. So there was a meeting. I was called into this meeting. One of the troubles with Marvel was, like I said, Galton had never actually opened a comic and didn't really know much about it. Most of the upstairs executives had not opened a comic book. Uh, we had a licensing person, an uh, international licensing person, Gail Munn. She called me up one day all excited because she just made this fantastic deal for Wonder Woman. I said, Gail, we don't own Wonder Woman. We don't own Wonder Woman. She said, well, why'd they call me? I said, because people, at this point, we were like 70% of the market. Yeah. I said, because if it's comics, they think it's us, you know? And, and I said, why don't you call whatever her name is, I can't remember right now, then the licensing lady over at uh, LCA, and I said, tell her you teed up a deal for her, you know? <laughs> Make out like, you, you know, you, you were just being, doing her a favor. She was so furious. She said, it's like, I made this great deal. <laughs> it's, well, too bad. And then the promotions lady, in charge of promotions. I never never promoted anything of mine. I don't know, but but she, uh, Nancy Allen, vice president of promotions. Her main job seemed to be organizing the Easter egg hunt at the White House uh, with the Marvel costume characters. Um, but she called me up one time. She said, "How many stories are in each each comic book?" I just opened one to look. But uh, I was like, "No, well, hmm." I mean, she thought there were like three, four, five stories. You know? I never actually opened one. Got the bundles every week, just like everybody else. Never had a problem. So anyway, my point is, uh, so the licensing people, they used to like to include me in all these meetings, because therefore they never had to open a comic book, because the, I could <laughs> provide the information. Yeah. So when Mattel started saying, yeah, but we don't even know these characters, you know, we have to, what are we going to, you know, are you going to do anything to help us promote this? So they call me into the meeting. I got the president of the company, I got the Mattel guys, I got uh, the R licensing people, and me. And, uh, uh, maybe Mike Hobson was there. Maybe Mike Hobson. Um, so they said, the Mattel people said, what we would like for you to do is do some big event, publishing event, you know, whatever, anything that can get a lot of publicity, that, gets a, that has a big impact, that will help people get to know these characters. And if you do that, then we're interested in, in, in licensing them. And so they all kind of look at me, well, Jim, you know? And I said, well, how about we do this 12-issue story with all the major villains and all the major heroes, one big story. And I said, I get fan mail that suggests this every day. Has you already come up with this? Uh, no, just, uh, same came, sort of concept? 
prior to that? Wasn't there we, a... We did, Bill Mantlow wanted to do uh, uh, the, uh, uh, an Olympics book. And then we uh, found out okay. how much it cost to license the Olympics and gave up on that. So then he came back with the idea of like, well, how about I, I do a contest of champions? That's, that's right. And, and I make up a whole big ton of characters and, and they have like a competition. I said, okay, sure. You know, so he did that. And I guess that kind of relates a little bit to Secret Wars. But I, you know, the thing with that is that was all new characters created just for that purpose. So he didn't have to worry about continuity. He didn't have right. to worry about, you know, any of that stuff. And, and besides, he couldn't keep score. And nobody won. Well, a... somebody did. But, but the, he, the, he, at one point he said it was like two to one, and it was actually two to two. Right. I read it, I was like, hell. Right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, but anyway, so, so that was, yeah, I mean, I, that wasn't where the idea came from. But I mean, like, uh, the idea came from the fandom. Really? People, people wrote in all the time saying, why don't you do one big story? Um, so, so anyway, we, we, we did that. And I, uh, my intention was to make it a good comic book first. You know, and then Mattel gave us some little requirements. Nothing I couldn't handle. I mean, they, they said, they said, well, we'd like Dr. Doom to be a little more technological looking. He looks too medieval. It's I can do that. I can work that into the story. No one will ever know. Uh, they wanted uh, uh, them to have vehicles. Well, there aren't alien planet. They could have vehicles, sure. They, you know, stuff like, that. well, we need stuff for play sets. Well, I'll give them a headquarters, you know. Um, nothing that I couldn't work with. And then they left me alone. I never heard from them again. Did they ask for the black costume for Spider-Man? No. no, the black costume was also suggested by a fan. Right. He, he wrote a, a, a plot. Right. He sent it in. You paid him. I paid him. Paid him for it. I paid him for the yeah. idea. I right. paid him for the idea. And 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 the the thing is that the plot it, it was amateur, but and it was about Reed Richards making Spider-Man a high-tech costume. His costume was described as a black costume. That's it. Two words: black mm -hmm. costume. So I called him up, and I think I paid him five hundred dollars. For, for the idea, I, I said, you know, we, we could do a black costume. We don't have to pay anybody, but, but, you know, I, I, I don't want you to feel like we, you know, we ripped you off here. And, oh, he was thrilled. And then Defalco read the, read the plot he sent. He said, I'm going to try to work with this guy and see if I can train him. I said, okay, knock yourself out. He did, Nothing. couldn't, no. couldn't, couldn't get. The guy just, he didn't have the chops. So, so, so anyway, uh, but he had a, he had a shot. Yeah. And the people at, uh, at Mattel, it was Mattel, right? Yeah. Mattel. Yeah, Mattel. They liked the black costume so much they ended they, up putting out an action figure of it, right? Well, they, yeah, they never, they didn't know so about there was, it. No, until, they didn't know about it at first, but I yeah. think it became yes, so popular yes. that they ended up introducing it. Not, so not only that, I mean, like, the, the thing is, like, uh, okay, so I wanted to have, I said, this, this entire story is going to fall between the December books and the January books. No, it'll go 12 issues, but it, mm -hmm. it, it all technically happened right here. Right. So we had to plan everything in advance. And I told all the guys, I said, get your characters to Central Park at the end of your December issue and pick them up in Central Park at the beginning of the January issue. But they're going to be a little bit different. So people are going to wonder, well, well what happened, you know? Right. And so we came up with, with things that each character, like the thing wasn't going to come back at all, and She-Hulk was going to... FF and, I mean, we came up with all whole, all the stuff that was going to go on, and uh, and then uh, I'm like, well, what are we doing, Spider-Man? That's a black costume. Bingo! And I had this thing in my desk stuff, and I I, I I got it out and I I called Zach, and I said, I want you to design a new costume for Spider-Man. He said, Well, what do you want? I said, Black, black costume. That's the only instructions he got. 
and he did it all from there. He was amazing. Yeah, he did great. Yeah. And and, uh, and so, uh, of course, it appeared first in Spider-Man, because it didn't come out until our eighth right. issue. Um, so anyway, as soon as we decided to do that, I, I go to the licensing people, and I said, oh, we're going to you know, change Spider-Man's costume. Uh-huh. No reaction. <laughs> so I go, to the, I go to the PR lady, Pam Rutt, and I said, I said Pam, we're going to uh, change Spider-Man's costume. I said, uh, should we do like a press release or something? She said, no one will care. <laughs> and I said, okay. So that first issue of Spider-Man comes out, and the storm happens. Uh, first thing that happens is, is that uh, uh, the licensing people call me furious. We have the red and blue costume license all over the world. What the hell are you doing to us? You know? And I'm like, relax. You know, it's going to be okay. You know, and uh, and then the the, the um, uh, who else? Who else? The licensing people and uh, oh, somebody. I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I got a complaint from some 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 big shot upstairs. But the, the the amazing Spider-Man 252. I, I believe so. Sold like crazy. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, well, all this stuff starts happening. And then all and the, my phone starts ringing. And it's 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 the uh, wire services. It's the Daily News. It's the Times. It's the Post. It's the Miami Herald. It's the Cleveland Plain Dealer. It's it's other papers. Getting all these calls. So I go to the PR lady. I said, you know, I'm getting all these calls. What do you want me to? How do you want me to handle this, Pam? You know, you said no one would care. You know. <laughs> so then she had to scramble around and put together, pretend like we were, you know, we already had press releases and stuff, and sent them out. And we got coverage all over the place and the, the book sold like mad mm -hmm. and um, so you know and, and the thing is like at first all these licensing people were mad at me then they found out they started getting calls call from Germany uh, we want to license the black costume too you know <laughs> and so what we did is we had the red and blue costume license and we almost it doubled the licenses because everybody wanted the black costume so it went from everybody being mad at me for a minute to to uh, the next thing you know, they're printing up business cards for everybody with the black costume. Mm -hmm. And they're printing up stationery with the black costume. And, you know, it, it became like a thing. And I said, I said, there's no reason you can't have two costumes. I mean, I, I got more than one set of clothes, you know. <laughs> so, uh, that, that all, that, yeah, it, it did, it took off, it sold huge numbers. It, it boosted the sales of the other books. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, and then it, 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 it became kind of a, a, a it got enough publicity and enough attention that it, it, it became one of those things where people, it got people into it. They'd see this cover with all these characters on it and they'd think, well, you know, got to have this. Um, so I got an awful lot of people. I go to, uh, this last year, I, was, I went to eight conventions because they were, it was the 30th anniversary of Secret Wars. And uh, uh, they wanted me and Mike Zuck and John Beatty to go and, and go to all these shows together. You know, sign books, do panels, stuff like that, uh, th and it's still going on. If the, the 30th anniversary is over, yeah. they're still inviting us. I'm sure the fan reaction is, is tremendous. Then even now, I mean, I literally have a friend. That I work in software. I literally have a friend who just showed up one day wearing a T-shirt of the first issue cover. He's like, he's like, this is something I loved when I was a kid, and I, yeah, you know, yeah, a 40-year-old man wearing that shirt. A related story. I, I was riding my bike the other day in Vernon, Connecticut, where I live, along a Rails to Trails, and there was a section of the Rails to Trails where they're doing graffiti art. 
they were doing it graffiti illegally and the town was, you know, paint, painting over it. And finally some kids went to the town and said, do you want to keep painting over it or do you just want to let us do this? Put the money you would put into cleaning it up into the arts and just let us take it over in just this one section. And they said, okay, fine. So he's down there doing his graffiti art. I'm coming along and I'm, it's very impressive stuff and I'm telling him. And we got to talking, we're discussing, you know, our lives. And I told him I'm the comics historian. I'm going to go interview this guy named Jim Shooter who was editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. He goes, Right now, one of my art projects is I'm taking pages from Secret Wars and doing collage work with them with graffiti cool. art. That's cool. You know? Yeah. And it just, this is some guy I just came, I mean, it's still in the popular culture. And it's oh, being, yeah. it's still having this effect in this outflow. Well, it's they, pretty they amazing. Did, they did a sort of a, a remake of it or something last yeah. year, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I haven't heard too much, but I haven't heard it, so I don't know. So well, I just think it's great that people are still finding there's like this energy in, in that. Story. Yeah. Well, that, see, one, part of my theory was was uh, <clears throat> this direct market was taking off, and as the direct market took off, the salespeople, because that was shooting fish in a barrel, mm -hmm. yeah. they, they got less and less interested in the newsstand. And I'm like, no, 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 no. no that's you get seventy thousand outlets. That's where people get hooked. Yeah. Yeah. And then if they really like something, they'll go find the comic shop, right. so they can get more of it. That's you know? what happened to me. And, and I said, that's, we've got to keep the yeah. we've got to do everything we can to keep the newsstand healthy. Was part of your drive and it, what, with your editorial philosophy and your uh, pushing story to the forefront and making sure that people uh, paid attention to what it was that they were doing, was part of that with uh, the mind of, ha of the newsstand sales, of the people who had like, you know, spotty distribution, they were able to pick up one issue and it would make complete oh, sense to them. Well, it should anyway. I mean, right, you buy right, a exactly. unit of entertainment, that unit of entertainment should be complete have enough to entertain you. Right. It doesn't matter, it doesn't mean it can't be continued, but there should be enough that happens there. But you it know, was also like, on my blog, just... I have this whole thing about the theory of continued stories and right. how to do it and stuff like that. But, but my, 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 my thing was like, like, let's keep the newsstand healthy because Right. Secret Wars, Transformers, and especially G.I. Joe. Yeah. The reason we, I mean, and Star Wars, of course, but yeah. but the reason that we did G.I. Joe and Transformers, and not because we didn't have any ideas that month, <laughs> it was because there was not going to be a person in America that didn't know what G, who G.I. Joe was. Right. And so somebody passing one of those 70,000 outlets and seeing a G.I. Joe thing, and you know, the little kid says, hey, I want that, you know? That was me. Well then, if he, if he got the G.I. Joe and he liked it, yeah. then, well maybe next time he picks up Iron Man, or Superman, I don't care. Just, you know, get him, get people interested. I can say that it worked. Good. It worked, yeah, Jim, because it worked that, for me. that was me. Yeah. I was that kid. I, I, I got into comic books because of G.I. Joe. Yeah, well, because Joe. I saw it on the newsstand. I was a six-year-old, yeah. seven-year-old kid. It didn't hurt that mom would see it at the no. supermarket and it cost about the same as a box of spaghetti or something. So right. No big deal. I'll throw it in the stack with everything else. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Parents who would not never have a clue who Iron Man was, that they'd see a G.I. Joe and say, I want to take that home for little Bobby, you know? Right. And, uh, and so, and like I said, you know, you get one and you want more. And right. They, you go to the newsstand, they don't have any more. But then you find out there's a comic book shop in town, right? And so you know, I mean, and so we, we uh, to me, it was all about you know, like trying to reach out and build the audience, get, tell stories, get people to care about these characters. Like I used to care about Spider-Man when I was a kid. You know, I, I couldn't wait to you know, get together with Spider-Man again next month. You know, and, and see what was going on, and, and 
I, we didn't have that feeling in the, in the early 70s, mid-70s, but we tried to get it back, and, and then we did. We had our clinkers. <laughs> but, but we had a lot of good books. So you don't books. necessarily see art and commerce at, at loggerheads? I mean, that, not at all. Not at all? No. no. I mean, Sistine Chapel, I mean, that's right. commercial art. Yeah, right. yeah it's, it's, it's a complex right. question, though, I mean, because on the one hand, you know, something like Secret Wars and the synergy and the increase in sales, and that's, I think, an important part of your legacy, is establishing that kind of macro title. But does there come a point where that kind of thing actually becomes counterproductive? Oh, yeah, they, they, they immediately ran it into the ground. Sure. I mean, they the, we did Secret Wars, and... Uh, DC right away did crisis. We, they've been talking about crisis in one form or another since since uh, Jeanette Kahn first came. She had a party when she first came and invited all all kinds of industry people, including me, and uh, at her lovely house over on the Central Park West, her lovely uh, apartment in Central Park West. And so she says to me, she says, "Well, she says, you know, you're, uh, you, you know, you you are, are, are you're a shooter, you know." Tell me what I should do. I said, nuke it to the stone edge. Start over. I said, just, I said, just big bang. I said, just end all the books one month. Promote it for months before that you're going to end all the books. So everybody will buy those books. I said, and then one month, everything starts with number one. And you, you do it coherently this time. You don't have Central City and Star City and Metropolis and Gotham. And, you know, you, you, you coordinate a little bit. You, you make it a... A reasonable universe. It's hard for me to get upset when I'm reading Green Lantern and the aliens are, are invading because Superman was kind of kick their ass. It's, it, you know, it's no problem. You know what, what's what, what are you worried about? Because each one was its own little universe, and, and you know that, that, that. So, so I told her, I said, just you know, like get your continuity straight. Just just get make a universe, you know. And uh, so she said, oh, okay. Well, it turned out Jerry Conway had actually suggested something very similar before me. Um, uh, but whatever, I mean, it was a good idea, and uh, uh, so finally, I guess, when we were doing Secret Wars, I guess they figured it was time to try something like that. The first one really didn't really solve anything, I don't think. It just made it more complicated. It made it more baroque, didn't it? Yeah, yeah it made it, it, made yeah, it, made it, it seemed more to be the exact opposite. Now, now recently, <laughs> they've done that new 52, which is sort of it's more right, like it. Kind of way, but yeah. I, yeah. I didn't actually like that very much. But anyway, so we did, the, we did this first crossover. They followed with Crisis. Their first issue came out the same week as our last issue. Uh, and then right away, the people upstairs were so happy with all the money that they made from Secret Wars. Uh, I get this call uh, from the uh, president of the company. He, says, this is, uh, uh, he said, uh, uh, all, right, well, um, all right, we need the sequel as soon as possible. I said, whoa. whoa. I said, I need a couple of months off. <laughs> I've been working all day and then working all night, and this is getting a little old. And uh, he said, no. He said, you don't understand. He said, if you take a couple of months, that's each month is so many hundred thousand dollars off of our bottom line. He said, so get on it now. <laughs> I'm like, okay. They didn't ever actually open the Secret Wars or anything about it. All he knew was that it made a lot of money. So the art commerce balance is really hard to The art commerce balance. I had, a, I had a commerce gun to my head. <laughs> but but anyway, I you know I mean but but nonetheless, I was trying to do it right. I was trying to do it well. I was trying to, and I said I'm not going to do the same thing again. I can't do the same thing. So the next time, we did it in step with the regular issues and branched the story into the issues, 
So about halfway through crisis, DC, of course, you know, we're soliciting far ahead. They know what we're doing. So about halfway through crisis, they start doing that too, <laughs> you know, branching into the, into the books. And so I thought, all right, well, you know, that's fine. And, uh, but I, I, thought, I thought, every time we do this, we're going to do it different. Well, I didn't really get a chance to do it. I mean, so the next time I did it, I had my own company value. And I did it in the actual regular books with a special issue on either end. And, uh, I, you know, I basically I kept trying to come up with new ways to do it. I think I did it someplace else. doesn't matter. You were going to do it with schism. Or schism, yeah. right. And we had that all planned to do it different than, than, than uh, the other ones. Uh, but at any rate, I mean, I, I kept saying, we got to change it up. Everyone else just said, easy money. And they would have these stories where they'd throw a whole bunch of characters in together and kind of like Contest of Champions, it didn't really relate to anything else. Mm -hmm. Didn't affect the continuity. Uh, and, and it was just a you know, throw a bunch, big bunch of characters together. And every summer, everybody was doing it. Well, it devalued pretty quickly. And I think it actually had a detrimental effect in the yeah. long haul. So, you know, it's, just, yeah. it's, it's, it's become a joke. I mean, if I ever was in a position to do it again, I'd come up with a new way. I'd dazzle them. You know, I'd, I'd come up with something that would uh, be a, a, a different approach. I'd make it work, and you know, along with the continuity and, and, and everything. Anyway. Um, do you feel that the downward trend in comics right now is partially a result of these convoluted narratives and the being somewhat difficult for a new reader to oh, latch into? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, it's like the Swedish movies with no subtitles. I mean, you, right. you know, uh, I, I just, first of all, individual books are, you know, like, like just incomprehensible. And, and then on top of that, then there's, you know, uh, there's the regular universe, and then there's the ultimate universe, and then there's some other universe, and there's, you know, all this stuff. It, it just, it, it, and then the DC is even worse uh, it, because they, they're going to start everything over, but there's some guys that kind of like something that was going on before, so they're keeping that. Yeah. And it just, it's, it's alienating. It just, it, it, yes. And, and also, the, the, the thing is, nobody is, uh, there are a few guys that seem to have a clue. This guy is Snyder at DC, I think, is pretty good. Scott um, Snyder. Yeah. Uh, but I think he, he has a clue. And there are a few, there are some other guys that, that, that are okay. But a lot of these guys, no one is telling them introduce the characters, and they're not. <laughs> you know, stories start in the middle and end in the middle, and nothing much, you know, oh, there's a lot of sound and fury, but, you know, what, what actually happened here? Um, I mean, I, I, even they're, they're supposedly uh, their, their number one guy, uh, uh, what's his name, Jeff Johns? Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to, I don't know what I was doing, but for some reason I had to read some of his stuff. Well, I think it's because I had Legion of Superheroes characters in it. So they sent me these books, and the first one I looked at was the Justice League. <clears throat> so, open the book, and there on the splash page is a whole bunch of characters. And um, they don't have all their costumes on, or some of them do, and some of them don't. And they're all referring to each other by their first names. And some of these characters, I didn't even know who they were. You know, I mean, I kind of vague idea who Mr. Terrific was, but the guy didn't really look like the Mr. Terrific I remember, so he's somebody else. Um, and and there's and they're all calling each other Bruce, and you know, anybody seen Cal? And, and okay, well I knew who Bruce was. I, I figured that one out. I knew who Cal must be, right? And then they're saying uh, uh, something about um, uh, the Carters, 
Who are the Carters? And there's somebody else that's named. And, and they're all talking to each other. It's all, you know, the thing is, if you just ignore the, the readers having any chance to understand it, you can write kind of glib dialogue, you know, and, and, and uh, use a lot of pronouns, and it's fine. But so I'm, I'm pages into this book. I have no idea who these people are. There, nothing seems to be, you know, going on. Uh, they talk about stuff that isn't there, that might be going on someplace else. Uh, there's a there's a scene, a very cleverly written scene, where somebody gets murdered. Like, wow, that's, that's good, you know, really well written. Um, but it just kind of, kind of goes nowhere. And I don't know who's about about two thirds of the way through. I thought Carter's Hawkman. It's Hawkman. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. but I mean, like you know, if you're if you're reading a book, and in the middle, you you realize, oh, that's Hawkman. It takes you out of the story. Okay. You know, I mean, to me, the, when I used to read those old Ditko and Kirby. Uh, with Stan books, I get to the end and I, I felt like I'd seen a movie, mm -hmm. and I hadn't taken my eyes off those pages. And I, I was, you know, if somebody asked me about it, an individual panel or something, I probably couldn't remember it. I just it was all like I saw the movie in my head, and and uh, it was uh, that 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 seems to be gone. And uh, you know, I'm not saying that Jeff Johns isn't isn't a talented guy, but I, the, obviously the priorities are all different, and. Maybe there are people who know who Mr. Terrific is and could, would know the Carters right away and stuff like that. And, and, but that group get, keeps getting smaller and smaller. You know, there's just, there's just yeah. we're, we're just, you know, playing amongst ourselves here now. The medium sort of back to where it was when the first comic fans started to take over as writers early and artists 70s. in the early 70s. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's a lot of similarities. Because, because a lot of those people, they were fans. Some of them were very talented. Right. But nobody was trained. I mean, I, I think I'm one of the few guys, I, all right, Roy got trained by Stan to some, to some, uh, to some extent. You know, I worked with Stan really closely for years uh, on the strip, and then when he was around the office, uh, you know, on and off, first very closely for like every week, almost every day for, for a couple of years, and then after that, often, would, would, uh, even when he was out in L.A., I would go out there, or he would come back here. Or whatever we did, we spent time together and talked about stuff. And did a lot of theory. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I spent five years at boot camp with uh, Mort Weisinger. Right. So, I mean, like, I'm one of the few guys that ever actually got, had, uh, went through an apprenticeship. Right. That's, so that's actually one thing that's striking. You talked about getting the user, getting their users in, if you think about think of it in the software world. Um, getting the reader to be engaged with the characters. You create a, a slew of characters that were either completely unfamiliar to most readers or new to readers, from New Universe to Valiant to, uh, to the Broadway, Broadway comics, yeah. and also the Gold Key revival at Dark Horse. Right. It's kind of throughout your career. Um, obviously, as prep for this and interview. The, and the, the Big Bang, too. The, the idea that you would sort right. of start over with a fresh slate, which, yeah, right. Uh, so you've really had a chance to put these these ideas in motion. Um, it sounds like that's maybe one of the key things you want a, a, a writer to know these days is that they need to get the reader engaged and create a coherent world, but also give the reader entry points. Well, you know, DC when they announced the New Fifty Two it was all about you know the start of the DC universe again would give readers an entry point to the new, to the DC universe. And I wrote in my blog, in big red letters, 
every issue should be an entry point. Mm -hmm. Everyone, you know, I mean, like it was with with Stan stuff, and uh, it, I try with mine. One of the troubles I've had is that I I don't ever since I'm not editor in chief anymore, I I don't really have much control over the artwork. I send a script in. You should see my scripts; they're like telephone books. Mm -hmm. And are there still telephone books? There are, there but, are. Uh, but I mean, and they're all full of reference and stuff, you know, right. and a lot of photo reference and things. Um, and then still, the artist draws whatever he wants, and uh, it does sometimes. Sometimes I'm counting on the picture to tell part of the story, and it just isn't there. That was one of my favorite entries on your blog, actually, was where you went through some examples about it, like literally panel by panel. Yes. Commented on how the artist hadn't followed the script. Right. And, and made it. Um, Basically, yeah, I mean, like I had this, I had this artist on Turok, and he was—he's good. He's a talented guy. He was also Brazilian. He couldn't didn't speak a word of English. Mm -hmm. And so Chris Warner, the editor at Dark, was okay. He says, he's got a translator. It's going to be fine. So I'm writing these all this choreography, fight choreography, and all this stuff, you know. And and then I found out later from Chris that he found out that the translator would read all this stuff and tell Eduardo they fight. And so, is it his fault? No. I mean, like, basically, there's a failure to communicate. <laughs> right. But, but anyway, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. That, I think that again, I, this is, to the best of my ability, I try to do all that stuff. Sometimes I, it just doesn't happen, you know. But. but. Oh, thank you.